Okay. Um, I like starting with asking everybody about their weeks, and that feels good to me. I would like to keep doing that. Um, um, yeah, maybe just like something you're excited about that came up this week. Um, for me, um, I just, I got a, uh, a new job coming up that's gonna probably carry me through a, a specific kind of short-term job, but it's probably gonna carry me through at least a month or two of uh, expenses. So that's uh, every time that comes up, it's just a, a boost of uh, optimism <laughs> and hope for my for the immediate future. So that was a yeah, exciting thing. <laughs> to do like this flow of things yeah, right sure. it's like some weeks are just meh they're not bad mm-hmm. um it was a good week I think I'm excited I'm also I think gonna get a new kind of little side job mm-hmm. going on that I'm kind of excited about I'll get to meet some new people and stuff and maybe cut down on the hours of the regular job that I work, which would be nice. I'm also excited about all the stuff we've been studying here and a lot of the reading I've been doing. It's like, yeah, it's kind of exciting to me. Awesome. (coughs) Cool. Um, I've got no job prospects whatsoever. That's fine for right now. I have unemployment for a little bit longer. I've been writing. I finished a short story. I'm starting a new one tomorrow. I just read a great Kurt Vonnegut book. Um, slapstick which is about um, a pandemic and erratic gravity decimating the United States <laughs> written by the very last president of the United States it's really it's great it was like hated when it came out but it's actually really trippy now. I love that one yeah yeah it's really it's sad it's deeply sad too um, as I think most of this stuff is uh, other than that, I'm doing okay. I think. <laughs> um, doing well. I kind of had an attack of the of the immune system mm. this last week, which is exhausting when that happens. Um, but uh, it's something I'm excited about. doing a really cool training for work. It's like a 10-week training. Um, so that, that's been really neat. And then also, I uh, I might have found a, a left leftist podcast that I don't just hate, um, which I'm really excited about. So, I, I, but I'm still, the jury's out. They're just like, 
there's a, there's some engagement and self critique happening, which is like that's a miracle. It's what a is miracle. It? So, um, I'll, I'll have to get back. I just kind of st- I'm in the middle of listening to it, uh-huh. so I don't. I just kind of picked it on a whim, uh-huh. and I'm like, oh, this is this is they're actually like, yeah, it was yeah, it was just and they're talking about Lacan and ways that were interesting. Get back to you about the name. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. My week was very busy. Uh, Good. I'm excited because I'm going to be, we have students arriving at Lost Valley and be teaching starting next week. So that's exciting and engaging to ramp back up teaching about permaculture and sustainable agriculture, that kind of stuff. It's been a pretty chill week. I did go back to the theater, which is the first time I've been there in five months. It was weird. felt like post-apocalyptic, and within like a few minutes of being there, I heard the instructor yell at the students, socially distance while you're playing in the water! And I was just like, this is exactly why I'm not here right now, <laughs> because it's it's just, yeah, it, like, it makes my stomach, like, curdle. Um, but it was good. It was good to get a little bit of closure. Um, I definitely have been feeling, like, feelings of abandoning. Um, so it was good to get some closure on that and not feel like they actually do feel that way about me. Um, and then the school schedule was just released for 4J, so that's not happening. We're going to homeschool. Um, so having to figure that out, which is fine, but it also would be nice to cart my children off from nine to three. I would enjoy that. Um, so, um, yeah, it's good though. Are there any collaborative schooling prospects at Lost Valley? Yeah, there are. Um, but it's just like the organizing of it. And it's like, it's just so much easier when you can just have it all mm-hmm. like spoon fed to you. But <laughs> it'll be good. It's just like okay, this is happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Back Thanks. to the stay-at-home homeschool mom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Before we jump in, mm-hmm. um, Jackie had a suggestion last week, which I really liked, and I thought I'd propose. He would, uh, the way we had to leave last night felt kind of sh- or last time was felt kind of shitty because we were just like, oh, it's nine, we gotta run. Um, so I was thinking maybe we could like set an intention like around 8.30 each night to like switch into discussing what we're going to do, do next week. And yeah. then that gives us a little time to like figure that out and then like wrap up and like chat with whoever, say goodbye, <laughs> instead just of just having to like jump up and run. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a regular thing. We have to be back like by 9.30. So. I was going to bring something like that up too. Oh, cool. Because, yeah, I, well, I like it when everybody can kind of have some input into where we go next. And just sort of felt a little. I f- was super fascinated by this episode, and I really wanted to talk about it. So I, I kind of like brought it there. But I like having, oh yeah, I like having the um, broader input. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's bet on that. Around eight thirty, we'll start. Bummed. I brought ninja smoke bombs this time. I was just gonna straight up <laughs> disappear. You're, still, you're free. You're welcome to do that. Please. <laughs> that can be our 8.30 announcement. <laughs> 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 
Just do it at 830. I just yeah. want to see it one time. <laughs> compromise. Right? Ninja compromise. <laughs> yeah, so there's a whole lot in this episode that I did not understand. Uh, I have no exposure to Whitehead. Very, um, very limited understanding of Hegel. Um, I've never read Ricoeur. Um, but the the discussion of the scapegoat mechanism I thought was fascinating and how, how like the it was the first time I had heard it like kind of like the the scapegoat sort of thread traced through Zoroastrianism and Christianity and like the pagan religions and um, and how that's like such a a deep a deep psychological need in community is to is to scapegoat um, and how that sort of when you scapegoat like like or when there's a I guess there's some sort of yeah, I guess but I, it'd be helpful to try to kind of flesh it out what exactly the mechanism is how Christianity successfully addressed it and um, and what you know then look at kind of where we're at now and like how to how to successfully address how to healthfully address the scapegoat mechanism like the the sort of that inescapable it seems like an inescapable feature of culture and society um I, know, I, just, I thought I thought the way they handle it was like, it was a perfect like or a fascinating frame um but yeah I, I think it'd be helpful for me if we could like outline fairly clearly what the scapegoating mechanism is um, I don't know if anybody has like a stab at that. I I'd be willing to give it a shot. Please do, unless somebody. I just I love Gerard. Mm-hmm. I read that like that book back to back. I think the my they didn't touch on this. He touched on it a little bit when he talked about d- desire as a triad. Mm-hmm. But Gerard's whole focus is desire, and he says that we we don't actually desire anything on our own that we it's mimetic so it's like if you want something then all of a sudden I want something um or I want something more if you want something of mine and I see that you want it that becomes even more desirable to me which when I started playing that out in my head I was like whoa that pl- that like really um passes the test of my experience and like what I see so like the scapegoat mechanism arises from that, whereas two people get in a rivalry, a mimetic rivalry over an object of desire, whether it's political, a love object, any like material goods, and you know, covetousness. Um, and Gerard's idea is that the rivalry reaches such a pitch that the two rivals are actually miming each other in their their rivalry and hatred, and they lose complete grasp of the object that they were even even fighting over and the principles over which they were fighting based around that object which is it's a it's a devious mechanism and once you it's like once I read I read that book twice back to back and all of a sudden it was like wow it's like you could go through like contemporary society history and everything so his really quickly I said um I see Satan fall like lightning. Yeah, I love that book. Um, And so he doesn't say that the mimetic... 
function is it's the way we learn obviously as children but he says the only escape from that is to channel your desires into something transcend transcendent so they don't attach to like worldly things and get you into a rivalry and then hence Christ on the cross I don't think Gerard would say Christ died for our sins I think he died be, he would say he died because of our our sins and exposed the rivalry that leads us to constantly scapegoat and sacrifice people so this the role that the scapegoat plays, though, in my understanding, the reason that we need a scapegoat is because the tensions get so yeah. intense and they become community wide. And they're like, so in order for for it not to be like a war against all of, of all against all, the the mechanism is to find a representation in the scapegoat of the quote-unquote source of the civil problem is my understanding like it's a mis labeling of the source of the problem and it's usually an innocent yes i think it can be done more or less intentionally so it could be a misunderstanding or it could actually be like a lot of pagan cultures it's like ritualistically built into their culture that this is what you do yeah 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 well because they and they understood the the release mechanism yeah. and we're Everything doing goes. that as a ritual to prevent it from getting right to mm. this mob like mentality is my understanding yeah. of when I was reading it. So the scapegoat actually is the mechanism by which the tension is released. So yeah, his answer to that is like sort you I mean it's like that it's like sort yourself out, get your desires in order and like aim them at something that will help you transcend like mimetic rivalry isn't there a problem though for Girard that um, I can't remember if this is from I see Satan fall like lightning or if I read about this somewhere else but there's something that that's new now post Christ where we no longer have a way to like resolve the we can't. We can no longer use the scapegoat, and now there's like this prioritization of the victim or something. Yeah, my victim's more important than yours. Right. Yeah, it's like endless victimology running around with no like. It's like yeah. His I think his argument would be we threw the baby out with the bathwater in the sense he talks about Nietzsche at the end of the book and like God is dead. Yeah. And I think he says, he says like you're trying to solve the scapegoat function by identifying victims everywhere, and people are now competing with victimology. Right but they have no transcendent principle with which to relieve it. So, I mean, it plays, I mean, you look at what's going on with us and it's like my medical library everywhere. Was that it? Or, I mean, because you read it twice, I only read it once, but I thought what he was identifying the problem, and maybe he identified both, but I thought what he was saying was that the problem is, is that when you remove the mythological story of Christianity, like the whole thing, what you have is people who sort of begin to try to act, yeah, to like save victims. They identify victims and then they try to, so they're like trying to play out Christian principles without being Christian. And that that's yeah. the problem. Maybe that he talked about both things and I just don't remember. I, he didn't use this term, but it, does, it I think like his suggestion was that it devolves into virtue signaling. My, my, my victims are more important than yours. 
because he does have a chapter in that's like victims, victims everywhere, mm-hmm. you know. And he he makes a great, like a bold claim that they talked about in the in that video that I really like the guy that's talking back to Bard mm-hmm. in that. Yeah, he's great. Mm-hmm. I love that. His understanding of Gerard was like just like spot on. Um, I can't. I lost my thread. I feel like he missed even. The, it, Bard missed what I thought was his best point, Me which too. was that Bard, I don't know what he was chewing on, that he just kind of let go of, but... <laughs> Martyrs. <laughs> Martyrs, that's what yeah. um, But uh, that other guy, Thomas, um, was talking about and we've kind of brought up this idea that the once Christ, in some sense, exposes the victim, the scapegoat mechanism, so therefore we kind of end up with a weird, guilty conscience about utilizing that mechanism, yeah. but we nevertheless... There are very real that doesn't solve the problem of medic desire. Right. So it ends up coming out in these like sideways, the apocalyptic stuff. Yeah. Like yeah. That, that, yeah. And I, I just wish I did. Was that in that Satan falling yeah. book, the apocalypse? Could you talk a little bit about like how he understood the apocalypse? Boy, that was like I can't actually. Those <laughs> that the second time through I understood those last three or four chapters where he tackles Nietzsche, and I thought like him going head to head with Nietzsche was like one of the most brilliant and like respectful analysis what yeah i can't i can't i did remember the thread that i lost is like gerard makes the grand claim and i think that guy that was what's his name the guy that was talking to the left of the screen with the glasses um thomas Thomas something yeah something hamel hamel or something is that him okay he's great he said yeah gerard makes the grand claim that it's like for the first time in the history of the world Christianity exposed the scapegoat mechanism and created like concern for victims. He said before that there was no real like sense of like compassion for for victims in right. the sense that we know it now. And it's it's a pretty compelling argument, mm-hmm. you know. But does it stop scapegoating from happening? No, I think that's no. I don't really understand. Like, why does the scapegoat have to be innocent? Or what does that even mean? Like, if it's inevitable, it's sort of like. I think in like the like in the there's a surplus of so the rivalry builds to like a fever pitch and in like in in the sense that it needs to land somewhere and it usually lands almost arbitrarily on like somebody that's like po- like fairly powerless and dispossessed like a a lower class dispossessed person just to like relieve this excess of rivalry rivalry mm-hmm. and send both sides back it's like in the sense of like like Bataille and Blanchot and those guys talking about a surplus of violence needs like war is like a huge actually like after war people like ex- societies experience a level of peace and calm and serenity and everything kind of goes back to normal for a while before the function starts building back up and I think innocent just means that they are not the source. Yeah. Not that they're innocent is like in their purity. It just means that they're uh, they're easy to hate. Like, yeah, Gerard used an example in there at one point about like a, a travel a person traveling through a community being mm. the you know the ending up being the scapegoat on that one. So they could be an outsider in some way, or, or a perceived outsider. Right. 
like what I mean Hitler and the Jews is the perfect I mean example of that right yeah and the um, traveling uh, the gypsies yeah he, he brings that up several times yeah so they so the scapegoat victim <clears throat> I want to make sure I'm tracking this so scapegoat victim doesn't necessarily have to be morally pure or something like that. You're saying that they they can be like like Alexander Bard says like the, the prostitutes or the drug yes. users or whatever, yeah. but they yeah. can't be the cause of the exactly. rivalry. That's exactly so, it. Like they, there's no way they can be responsible for such a mass phenomenon between individuals in that way. So in that sense, they're innocent of that. And I, actually, I saw the I saw what I thought was just like the most like clear cut. I should send it to you. Example of a contemporary version of like textbook Rene Girard, in my as far as I understand it, was actually a QAnon video that my mother-in-law or my mom sent me. They're, they're both Q people, so um, they sent me this thing, and it was really incredible because it starts off with this like affirmation that like, "Hey, wake up, folks! We're actually really good," and it shows like Muslim and a Christian getting along. It's like, you know, we aren't really divided. And she was like, oh, wait, there's only one black person getting along. And it, goes, and it basically continues to tell this narrative that, like, all these frictions that you see are essentially the result of a few people that are actually evil. We're fundamentally good. We've kind of been duped. And, 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 the, and, and so, because if you read the QAnon thing, it's actually like, oh, this is really like ethical and like these are straight, like these are upright. Like, sure, who couldn't agree to this? But what doesn't get stated is that who, who the scapegoat, like this is all the fault of a handful of people. And they basically designate, they hashtag these people. And the QAnon group gets to be kind of self righteous, affirming, uh, reconciling differences and channels all that mm -hmm. hatred and all that energy into attacking these lynch mobbing people online. Um, and it was like, and it's just a spontaneous phenomenon. It's just like yeah. happening. Um, so I'll send you guys this video. It's like I'd amazing. It's an amazing you, example. You really see it in the way that people go after people's livelihoods now for like something saying something like against trans people, you know? And it's like, they didn't even say something necessarily transphobic. They were like, well, maybe men can't just become women and have all the privileges of women. And then it's like, you need to lose your job. You need to lose your career. You need to lose your livelihood. Like, yep. you can't be allowed to function. Yeah. Like, that's a perfect example of, like, where someone becomes, like, the target of the lynch mob. Here, here's what I don't yep. get. This is the, the part that I'm still super confused about is how does, like, what's an example given our contemporary context? Where's the mimetic rivalry part? Oh, like, everywhere. <laughs> but, like, what what's, what are they trying to, what are they seeing someone else desire that they want to desire such a way that it results in conflict. money, status, power, sex, political power, <clears throat> power. Like it's all like everything. Every all advertisement is mimetically based. Okay. Like the whole society is. I'm competing against you for these resources. If you have a nicer car than me, like that's a huge problem. Like it's it's like our entire society is okay. built on this. So is this an issue of scarcity of, like, would 
is this like another way of talking about the phenomena of like a scarcity of resources and kind of com- whether it's real it's or economic in, com- competition or false it. austerity? I think it, scarcity plays into it and heightens it, but I think it exists regardless. You know what? Maybe the you know what would be interesting is like can attention be the source of a yeah. Yeah. of a Girardian like mimetic rivalry because yeah. these groups are competing for like celebrity and attention yeah. which mm-hmm. is that's really interesting is that a resource and a commodity I think it fits into what our group's been talking about mm-hmm. you know when like the counter protesters show up against the protesters and the Proud Boys and the QAnon and the Black Lives Matter the, you know and all they're all like clamoring but you you go to one of those rallies and you watch mimetic rivalry taking place it's like the hate that is they are rivaling each other and mirroring each other in hatred. Yeah, and at some and point, violence the, the, and wanting to like pound like right. So is that a failure of a scapegoat mechanism though? Because that's like, like you know, like sometimes there is war. The, you know, sometimes the rivalry doesn't get de-escalated. I think the scapegoat mechanism is going to be like it's got to be something that both sides agree on, and usually in a like mass state, it's going to be war. It's like you've seen like the you've seen like the. The only thing that Democrats and the Republicans really agree on every once in a while that you see it's going to escalate as we head towards the election is like China or Russia. It's like, who are we going to pick to like scapegoat for all of our problems and failures? Mm. That's becoming harder to do. Exactly. I think that's what Gerard was talking about at the end in the apocalypse is like it's becoming really like like deranged, like babble. So so this is why I'm wondering if my QAnon example is like really good example of this yes but con like warring groups like let's say proud boys versus like black lives matter versus right. antifa is actually maybe a failure of a scapegoating mechanism so it, <clears throat> hear me i don't know if this is true i'm just wanting to flesh out this it, it is like a, a failure because it hasn't ha- arrived yet yeah we're not there yet Exactly, because it hasn't we given us peace. We haven't reached that point yet where there is a scapegoat. Well, but isn't it isn't it more complicated because of the Christian, like post Christ thing? So that there's no longer a, a way to like pick an innocent victim and make them a scapegoat because we've all sort of agreed that that's terrible, and so there's not there's no ground there to over like we can't have the pagan like who cares, let's just kill this person and things will be better, and like, oh, look, they are better. Like, like we're, we're past that in some ways. And it's actually, level. hasn't it been, like, turned on its head where it's like, there's nobody who's innocent except for, like, the most oppressed, the most, like, check marks, you know. Right. Whatever, the, what's the example people talk about, a transgendered lesbian, black little person or something where it's like they normally back in the day they would have been the scapegoat and now it's right. almost like they yeah. have the most power within this weird system of like this reversal of values yeah QAnon's brilliant they've picked pedophilia and a sex ring I mean they're like oh, oh the elite. Democrats are, are the, the elite super billionaire like pedophiles. the elites in the Democratic it's Party like are running a pedophiliac <laughs> sex ring and it's like that's exactly the scapegoat mechanism because it's a low hanging fruit Nobody's going to deny that that's a shitty thing. So it's just like, it's like you see these, you know, that's like, that's how they're confronting the BLM movement now. It's like, yeah, you guys, you don't understand what's really going on. There's a, there's a massive sex trafficking ring going on. You guys are like trivial and you're, you're kind of offensive. So it's like this litmus test of like, you don't care about this. You don't care about this. You you know, it's so like. That's, that's interesting because it it's like, it fails some of the like contours of the typical scapegoat being that they're powerful 
an evil. So it seems like a slightly different Inter- mechanism. That, maybe. That's why I'm trying to it's get a, a bead yeah. on. I'm trying to get a bead on this like post-Christian. Like, how I think do Christianity screw it up? There's like differences <laughs> I, in the way we use the word scapegoat, right? There's like the like general term, in which case you're right. Like they're scapegoating those people. Like these are the they're responsible for problems. But the way Girard talks about it in relation to mimetic desire seems like it doesn't fit that. You're absolutely how, right. How so? Can you kind of well because they're powerful. And evil are the two things I'm thinking of. Whereas the, the 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 mechanism that Gerard outlines, they need to be weak and innocent, or at least capable of being seen as innocent. Hmm. No, no, that's only after. That's like in in Gerard's, like when he's picking apart that pre-Christian myth that he like discovered. It's like the, the Greek the, one. What's that? The Greek one. Yeah, yeah, where the guy's like walking through town. He's yeah. kind of like they accuse him of magic, but he's just a bum basically and then afterwards his innocence is revealed and he takes on an aura of like right of like the martyr and all it's like that the flip that gerard talks about is weird all of a sudden he becomes like a holy sacred like martin luther king you know martin luther king is like an example but i think you're right the scapegoat mechanism is like it's incomplete but but didn't he talk about they weren't always weak i mean because was it this Sumerians, I might have the people on, but weren't they the ones that literally sent out, like the king would leave for several days, like carry all this, like it was a ritual where the king would be sent out and exiled for several days with all the sins of the community community, and he would go into the wilderness and he was strong and powerful, and the idea was that hmm. in doing that, it was like this cleansing process. So it was a very symbolic um, way at which they addressed the rising tensions of the community. Yeah. So it doesn't. I mean. It's a little different because they don't actually kill him. Yeah. Yeah. Did you? Did Gerard? I forget. Did he talk about like these mini? Re- releases kind of before yep. it reached that like that there were these sort of <clears throat> um, siphoning off of some of the energy through is it like through symbolic rituals or yeah. through let like lesser sacrifices so that what I would putting that on today like right now it's the doxing thing you know it's like that's a sort of a a mechanism by which people let go of some of the tension, like I got that guy, you know, and like let go of some of the tension, but it's not sufficient to completely deflate it. So it sort of keeps it in check for a while until somebody. But but regardless of dies. like <laughs> of whether it's like playing out in a true like orthodox Girardian fashion, I think the mechanism itself is like I don't know. It's like a super useful tool to yeah. me, whether it plays out. I mean, I think part of it is, like, Gerard seems to say, hey, this worked in, like, small <laughs> tribal, you know, they send the goat out, or it's, like, it was more ritualized and, like, built into the fabric of the community, but what he's, I, he's another one that's, like, well, here comes empire, and here comes the state, and the violence becomes mob violence and and chaotic, but it's still, the same mechanism is still a place, and that's what he says, like, was exposed on the cross, was, right. like, the truth of like it may have worked for a long time it's hard to argue with the peace that settles on you know on a community that's been at odds that's that's really interesting too because the other thing that strikes me about when christianity goes away is that 
the kind of the forgiveness mechanism also goes mm-hmm. away. It's like that in, in Christianity, you have the victims and the oppressors, but there's always a way to, to be forgiven because Christ died for you. Now it's no longer available. So now we see like, it's not clear to me that there's any way to be forgiven for your like sins against the victims. Like if you've been transphobic or racist or whatever, it's like at that point, you're just kind of like done. Yeah. Like <laughs> how do you come back from that? Yeah. The idea of like, love your enemy is completely gone, <coughs> which like kind of explains the way that like, both sides and the left is one of the things that we focus on right has become has lost all sense of self-criticism or all sense of fault or guilt it's like the self-righteousness and the inability to forgive the other person is like you your house of cards has to be completely solidly built up to where it's like well i'm all good you're all bad it seems like those that mechanism there's there's like well i think Gerard talked about that when he sort of talked about this taking on of like care for the victim without the structure of the mythology and the religion to direct that in a proper way mm-hmm. and that that was the danger that in sort of taking on the cause <coughs> of the victim that um, because there was no sort of yeah there was no spirituality involved it's just like I'm going to be this good person that, that that then that was dangerous because it sort of led down this this path to where the acknowledgement of our own aware our like one of the things that Christ dying in the symbology of all of that is is that we are all equally sinners right? right so that's like the thing is like I want forgiveness so I'm going to forgive you if you remove that out of it and just start playing with like you're a victim and I'm gonna like rescue you then I get to sort of take on like I begin if I don't you consider myself God. a sinner, I start looking out at the world as, you know, like that all yeah. plays into that sort of us versus them, which then feeds this rivalry. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's only through that sort of Christian window that we get to this insane inversion or insane to like the Romans where they'd be like, what are you praising <laughs> these right. wretches for? Right. Like <laughs> slaves in jail. Like, what are we talking about here? And now we're like creating pillars and putting the most, trying to find the most victimized people to put on them. It's like, yeah. Whereas, yeah, yeah. I need to reread those last chapters about Nietzsche. I They're really forgot about that part. It's like, cool. <laughs> I couldn't even. I just faked my way through it the first time. The second time, it that's it, probably what I did. It too. hit a little bit closer. I was like, I see what he's saying. It's not a pretty picture what he's laying out. Right. You know that it's like he's like, yeah, it's a good thing that we have concern and compassion for the victim now. But the foundation of it has been lost, so now everybody is taking agents. So it's like now you have mimetic rivalry over victimology. It's like, right. you know. That's like, I mean, that's a pretty strong argument, it seems like to me, for the state's monopoly on violence. Yeah. yeah. What else, what other option yeah. do you have? And that does, that's yeah. the answer to mimetic rivalry. It's like you have a third party who's like, keeps these people apart, who are completely insane yep. with this whole buildup, and yep. it's like, which is ironic that the people calling basically for the abolishment of it now would be the first to really be killed if like it wasn't there. The the only problem with that is that states too can get into mimetic rivalries. So yeah, totally. That and that becomes very dangerous. Like the Cold War is a good example, I think, of that. Russia and America. Mm-hmm. So getting like, I had some issues. Like some of the things Bard said about 
mob mentality and mimetic rivalry and the scapegoat function were amazing and then others I feel like he was like I flinched a little bit when he said that when he was talking about Pharaoh pursuing the the Hebrews fleeing Egypt and swallowing up and he's like and the, and they were a lynch mob and I'm like no they weren't they were state they were the state you know a lynch mob it seems like in, in the Girardian function is like more from the ground up it's like did anybody else like catch like feel like he was like kind of muddling that a little bit mm, I didn't notice that Hard, but huh? anyway. I, I, I remember him saying that now it didn't stand out to me it stood out to me but I don't no, more just that that didn't make sense to me that you would attribute that to that situation. To a mob, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the it's army like a, coming after. Yeah, yeah right. it's like a it's mob violence. Yeah. <clears throat> it's not a mob to yeah. me either, but for argument's sake, I felt like I was able to follow through. Yeah. I'm nitpicky. Yeah, it's good to be. Nitpicky. I need to find something to say. <laughs> it could be. Yeah, those are actually, like, my favorite things to do with art. It's just trying to, like... Actually, those nitpicky points are sometimes, like, the most fruitful for me. So, like, <clears throat> can you flush out for me kind of why... What was it about that scenario that he spelled out in calling it a mob that, that was didn't ring? Well, I had a... I had... There's, there's points where I was, like... The only thing that Bard talks about that I have any facility with is Marx, Nietzsche and Freud Hegel, Spinoza, all that stuff so he's, that's way over my head but he did an interesting thing which raised a flag for me is when the other guy pointed out he said well the Jews were sla- the Hebrews were slaves right and he's like not like African American slaves they were like Marx's proletariat and I was like what the fuck what the fuck that's like it seems like he, he makes he makes really interesting leaps with things that, like, he negates. Like, if Marx wouldn't consider the slaves in America an emergent proletariat, I don't know who, you know, who would be. It's like, so that was like a weird, that was a weird distinction that I think led to him to make. What, why false. was he objecting to them being called slaves? I don't know. He said they weren't slaves like African American slaves. Yeah, but, they were. But they Thomas were was in like, a position to become masters and to have power whereas like African Americans were not really they were mm. more like what he would describe as the real underclass and that's the yeah. thing about Bard is that like he talks about the proletariat's not the underclass he says that there's always going to be an underclass it's inevitable and that there's nothing you can do about it and that these stories that we like to tell ourselves about like everything being great and that like everybody can have whatever like we can basically have like peaceful societies where there isn't an underclass is an illusion Mm-hmm. Like and again, like you can agree with him or not, but he has it. Like it's not just that's not a pretty observation. Like and again, it's like it's kind of it doesn't sound good to say something like that. And it's like, but I think that's what he means. Yeah, that's helpful. And that's sort of like that's a deeper argument. Or like Thomas Sowell, the economist, makes a similar. He flushes out the argument that it's like disparities in wealth in this country and probably in other Western countries too are based more around, like, history and culture. It's sort of like different immigrants that came here had different skill sets and they had different heritages. And that's what makes them successful or not. So, like, Germans had all these, like, watchmaking abilities and these kind of, like, mechanical skills. And 
Jews have been struggling for millennia, and they have all kinds of skills in order to succeed <laughs> wherever they go. And it's not like African Americans are completely fucked. It's like they got brought here. Like they have, it's worse than anybody really imagines. It's sort of like there's no way really out of that to even give them any kind of like reparations that would make that okay. It's like mm. it was completely fucked up what happened to them. They were not in any position to like Any succeed. sort of cultural heritage was, yeah. was intentionally. Okay. So like they're actually, they have no other position to occupy but that of slaves. I think. I mean like if somebody else has. No, no, no. That's helpful because that raised a flag for me. I was like. I, I kind of took issue with that. I still don't understand though how you're saying that the that the Jews or that yeah that that they weren't slaves in Egypt. I think if I <clears throat> I think what you're is this I think I'm tracking. So with for him the proletariat isn't so much an underclass phenomena as it is like some cutting edge for some new possibility where they are. So where slave in American history was a purely underclass phenomenon, like there wasn't something something happening in the cotton fields that was going to just, you know, be the, the next new thing mm-hmm. or something like that. But in he's suggesting that in the story, the, the Jews were kind of on their way to some promised land of some sort where there was some new possibility going to be. They're exiting, and they're exiting towards some new order. Um, and so he's wanting to make a distinction between... I still wish I knew what he was objecting to, why he... So this is given that he's objecting to the slaves being thought of as an American slave in yeah. American economy versus this kind of, like, exitology thing where they're kind of, like, on their way with... Assumedly, some some skills or some possibilities, some ways of thinking. Yeah, and it's weird. While you were talking, I was like, "Well, wait a minute!" Like black culture that arose out of slavery gave like American culture a lot. Blues music, um, a new reading of Christianity because they got their hands on the Bible. They're like, "Wait a minute!" It was like liberation, messianic. Strangely enough, based off the Exodus. Right. So it's like, so I don't even see that that like I. I think they would fit Bard's definition of an emergent elite proletariat in a weird kind of way, you know, that it's like black culture has been really powerful in, in American culture. If I'm understanding what you were saying, Wes, and this actually makes sense to me, is that, like, in in at that time though the Jew, the Hebrews were slaves of Egypt there was also the ability to socially move like a woman could marry an Egypt like like there was some ability to sort of they weren't regulated to this like very small narrow piece of society that were essentially untouchables like black people were when they were in I mean, because that just wasn't going to happen in the United... Like, that, the, the, the slavery looked different. Yeah. Hmm. And, and so because of that, there was more possibility for movement than what was afforded to black people in the United States. Is that accurate? It, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just say that that doesn't feel like something to me that Bard would care about. Like, I feel like there was another point. Like, like... I don't feel like he would be like, well, we can't compare it to black people because we need to give them their own narrative. Like, 
I feel like there's mm. another reason for him rejecting. Maybe it was idea. just him being barred. Being barred. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's there's another instance where he's like, it, Nietzsche's one mistake was making the Ubermensch a, a radical individual. He should have made him a group. And I was like, wait a minute, that was like exactly like everything Nietzsche did was to dismantle and free the individual from like all ideology and all group identity. It was like that was like another claim that just got thrown out there like that one. I was like, wait, whoa, whoa, backtrack a minute. That's like, and and that's, yeah. I, I felt like it's almost like potentially the reason he was saying that was to make the story of the Hebrews leaving Egypt more relatable to the new proletariat rather than, but I don't know. I was like, because I don't, I guess I don't know the history well enough, but I feel like the version that I know is that the Hebrews were very much slaves and didn't have the ability to move up in class, which is why the story of Moses was so profound, because he did move up in the class, but it's been a while since I was in Sunday school. So. I think it's like, what he means by exodology is this thing, like, even if they don't, you can be in a certain, he calls like a paradigm, a certain time and place where it's like it has its metaphysics and it has its story, and it's like within that, they're slaves, but there's some kind of there's going to be a shift or whatever and it's like there's going to be people during that time who fit into the shift and actually are in a better position to have power and that's what happened with the Hebrews right and we're like if you look at like I like what Rick said about like African American culture but to me again it's like it's like punk rock culture or something it's like it has no power the whole thing is it's like it's this sort of rebellion against the status quo and against power but like the only way it actually becomes mainstream is when it gets commodified and turned into something else so like that doesn't mean that yeah like I don't know like one of his claims now is like we're in this position where it's like you know the netocrats are going to (laughs) be the new he calls them the proletariat but also they'll be the ruling class somehow or something like I don't know if that's like yeah. Yeah. His marks is weird. The way he I like all that stuff though because it's like he's not He's not a slave to the like original. Yeah, he yeah. takes yeah, what he I takes appreciate what he likes that kind of postmodernism. I think it's appropriate especially now because things yeah. are so crazy anyway that it's like take what you can use and do what you want with it as long as it's like building something that's Yeah. No, I like that too. But it is, he'll just say something and it'll be like, Marx didn't say yeah. that. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, he's like, I wanted to bring up something, I don't know, like, because this is like, he started, like, I started looking into these names that he brings up and these thinkers that he's into and the people he likes the most, and they're like, I knew who Jason Giorgiani was, actually, before I heard of Bard. Do you guys know who that is? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not only... I looked, I looked his face up. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I heard him on, like, there's this podcast called, like, New Thinking Aloud with Jeffrey Mishlove. Do you know that guy? Mm-mm. He's, like, the only person, I think, alive who has a PhD in parapsychology. He's, like... <laughs> and he's, like... But he has all these, like, very interesting kind of, like, weird new age... But kind of, like, legit thinkers on there. But one of them, this guy, Jason Reza Giorgiani, is this Iranian guy... He's American, like some Iranian nationalist or something who's like, he's really into like Kafka and he had this analysis of Kafka's trial that I thought was like, like he talks about really interesting things in philosophy in a way that's like, like he's 
a postmodernist or whatever, but a really interesting one. He's also one of the founders of the the real alt right. Like yeah, there's videos like of him with Richard Spencer and stuff. And racist, like, yeah. Well, I don't know if he is. That's I think that's why he split oh, from okay. that part of the alt right that he helped found because he didn't agree with that He's version of identity some, politics. I, I don't know if you heard this much. Uh, I'll I'll send it here. It was an interview with Bard by some people that, and they just kind of have a long conversation about George Johnny. Bart says like that's his favorite philosopher. He this is like he's a Gnostic that we totally disagree, and he's a racist. But he says some really like, I guess it catches what day you catch Bart on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but they're both. But Bart like they're coming from Giorgiani's rewriting sort of like of his, he does like his Iranian history. Yeah, and the whole like Bronze Age philosophy and stuff of like it's very, you know kind of right wing Nietzscheanism. It seems like to me a lot of this stuff, and I'm just like curious like. There was also this talk that was interesting between him, this guy Ben Tier or something or other. He's this, he's a professor of like right wing studies at one of these universities, and he's like, he wrote this book about. It's called Steve Bannon and like the far right circle of like power players or whatever. And it's like, so he spent hundreds of hours with Bannon and like Georgiani too. To and podcast. It's interesting. Is that it's the very, very the one? Is that the same? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that guy. So, like, some of this stuff with Bard's actually what he thinks about... I mean, if you want to take him seriously at all, I guess. About history and how about some kind of whatever he would call activism plays out. They talk about towards the end of that video what he actually sort of thinks about what kind of part he would play or he would think that somebody like him would play in whatever he believes is going on. But it's, like, all the people that he's really interested in are these, like guys like this so I'm just curious if anybody else is like what do you think about that and I, that's, like, that's kind of what I was I mean he started I uh, yeah I got, I got some red flags watching that video today of him of like I was like wow there's like some like hints of like white nationalism <clears throat> and fascism and and I, I flinched at the comment about about you know the the distinction between African American slaves and the Hebrews, and it's like thanks for no, that's like, not what take, I'm saying. For taking that, and I don't have a well. That's what's kind of interesting because I'm not. I'm pretty open. I was already kind of interested in some of that stuff, mm-hmm. at least his ideas, because I was like when I went to school, I didn't even know any of that stuff existed until I went on YouTube, and it's like it goes in some pretty far places, but it's like yeah I was wondering if you're not predisposed to just like not even want to look at that stuff what you know what do you guys think about that sorry I didn't mean to like that's alright I'm done <laughs> no don't be done <laughs> no I I no I know for for me at least like the Georgiani thing I didn't I caught the Leviathan the Iranian Leviathan reference in one of the podcasts and looked it up and it was a little bit like 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 okay how how right like for me I'm kind of I have my Oberton window you know and I was like I wasn't sure how far this was I was like getting a little uncomfortable I'll be honest with you like with with like but then but then what strikes me about Bard's engagement is he's not afraid to talk to any of these people and he'll have full-on conversations and he could be like, yeah, I think that's great, I think that's great. No, I'm not a Gnostic. No, I'm not a racist. Like, <laughs> like I love all these ideas and I don't like those two. 
you know, and yeah. and his <clears throat> comment on the Bannon thing, and he had, I guess he had, like, uh, a debate with someone in the Swedish alt-right, and they had a kind of a televised debate, and most people won't even give this person the time of day, and he has, the, like, he's willing to debate him and, and talk with him, and his... The overlap there is with the Bannon stuff, the acceleration, the right-wing accelerationists um, is kind of, I liked his critique of that, like, that, okay, we can bring about the demise of something, but that doesn't necessarily leave us in a position to actually do something. So I think that's where his utopianism is helpful, of like, we, we got to have a vision for something, we can't just like accelerate the chaos and expect the universe to bring about the resolution. And that's my understanding of the Bannon um, yeah. right-wing accelerationists and the left-wing accelerationists as well. Um, but I admired his ability to kind of like some of their ideas and not like others. He doesn't split, except when he's talking about Rousseauians. <laughs> Otherwise, he can like let them be uh, like like things that are good and bad. Like he doesn't have to have them be all good or all bad. And I really admire that about him. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the word he uses for it to describe himself is cosmopolitanism, right? So he's like he thinks that we all need to like live together and interact, and and I think he's more like like liberal than most liberals are in the sense that he's like willing to shine light on whoever on whatever ideas are out there and like right now we've entered in this weird place where it's like there's this like dark areas that you're like not allowed to talk about or look at or see and like those people can never be acknowledged because even to acknowledge them is to give them power and it has kind of the opposite effect in my opinion like actually gives them more power because then it's like people like oh well we can't talk about this so let's go look at it like i've had a good friend who's like shifted the overton window of what's acceptable like for me to talk about in a really radical way and so I've just like been forced to engage with all these people on the right who I would like have I have no sympathy for I have very little agreement with and Bard for me is kind of like a a way to like talk to these people to my friend like it's like a engaging with these ideas but in very critical ways not accepting uh, but also not prima facie rejecting them but yeah I don't know a lot of a lot of Bard's uh, like fascination with Steve Bannon, for instance, seems like kind of stupid to me. It's like I don't know that he's this like amazing figure who's gonna like do anything useful at all. Did he kind of feel? I can't remember much of that podcast anymore. Did he actually have some like? beyond kind of a voyeuristic sort of interest in Steve Seemed like it. It seemed like he was like really fascinated and uh, yeah I mean maybe that's just voyeurism I don't know. Like I find him fascinating doesn't mean I want to like right. you know. No it seemed like he was weird occult. Yeah I'd have to re-listen to it. Maybe you remember because you've listened to him more recently. Yeah he's interested in him because he's like he's spiritual. <coughs> yeah. Because he himself <laughs> I read a little bit of that book because you get free samples on Kindle, you know. So yeah. I read like the first two chapters, and like Bannon was stationed somewhere. He was in the military. And he was somewhere in Asia. I can't remember what country, but he would go to this little bookstore that was like off the beaten path and like sit in the New Age section all day and read all these crazy like philosophers. But like, yeah, he's a capital T traditionalist, which is like this weird, obscure 
philosophy that was around. So the interesting thing is around the, I don't go too much, but I think it was around the late 19th or early 20th centuries, there was this weird cultural thing going on, kind of like now, where people were exploring new ideas, and like, so the guy that wrote this book said, if you zoomed out far enough, like, these people on like different wide sides of the spectrum would kind of believe and want the same things, if you looked <laughs> from far enough away, and sort of like... So there's these weird ideas coming from... It was, like, really against modernity. That was the thing that unified these various strange thinkers and sort of weird New Age wackos. And, like, they thought that modernity had taken a wrong turn. And that, But also this weird idea of history, that it's, like, it goes in cycles. Yeah. And that, like, if you can time it sort of where you're at, then you figure out how you're... That's the thing. It's, like, which Bard seems to kind of believe. It's, like, if you know where history is at in the present and like what's going on with the culture it's almost like I thought of this when I was driving over here that you know when you're playing poker especially when with a wide variety like a, No Limit Hold'em or something anybody who plays cards it's like bluffing is a big part of it and it's like so it's not only the cards you have but it's also like the history of your opponent and how they behave in different situations and then paying attention to them in the moment all these little cues give you an idea of what your odds are and like what choice you want to make and it's like that's what he seems like <laughs> With all his intellectualism, too, it's, like, based around this, like, trying to, like, interpret history and then have the odds in his favor and then act because of that. Yeah. Are you talking about Bard like, or Bannon? Yeah, yeah. Bard. Well, Bannon, too, because he's, like... Definitely Bannon, yeah. He sees himself as somebody who was, like... So there's history. You can be in history. A man who's in history, which Hitler was, which is somebody who, like, is very destructive. Man in everything. time. Yeah. Real, a man in time. Dist- yeah, what was that? Dist- who doesn't realize that he's really what he's doing is destructive and that he's basically a puppet. You have the man who's outside of time who does destructive things but realizes it and knows what he's doing and that's how Bannon described himself and he described Trump too as somebody who's just like a man in time and doesn't really know what he's doing and I'm going to like use to like do strange things or whatever. So I don't, I don't actually know that's I don't think that's what Bard believes. To me it seems like he has a much more like um, I don't even know what the right word is. It's I don't think Bard thinks that there's like predetermined cycles that we're going through. That would make no sense with most of what I've seen him talk about. I mean, feel free to jump in if you. No, I think that's right. I mean, I yeah. see the the similarity though is that if you can read what's going on in history, yeah, you can that's maybe true. Say what's coming next, but I think but for Bard, right. there's no determinism. Yeah, and I think for yeah. Bannon, there's a lot of determinism. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty crucial distinction. And I can see how Bard's interested in the nomadology. It's almost he would read Bannon as nomadological. Yeah, like kind of collapsing the eventology the, the linear history into the into the nomadic yeah. eternal recurrence yeah he would want to kind of parse those out in a different way yeah I super want to read that 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 whole intellectual history this idea that there's this like like crazy like obscure intellectual history behind like Trump. It's just yeah, such also, a bizarre idea to me that overlaps I want with Hitler. Esoteric yeah. Hitlerists. Yeah. That was like the one. <laughs> He's like everybody's had their esoteric Hitler phase, right? <laughs> His was two weeks. Uh, I had it to shift the conversation slightly. I had a kind of uh, insight. I listened to this podcast once and I was like, I was like, why is he banging on about martyrs so much? Like, I didn't yeah. get it. And then listening to it a second time, I had this kind of insight. I was like, oh, I realize like, what the problem is for Bart, I think. Please which is that <laughs> martyrs are a heroic victim. 
So in some sense, they're like a contradiction for Bard that he needs to like figure out because for Bard, there's like he's very Nietzsche and there's heroes and there's victims, but martyrs collapse the two together in a mm. weird way that I think he's like really like trying to figure out how to make sense of it. With it. I don't know if that makes sense to anyone else, but that was sort of like I was like, oh, I see, because the first time I was just like, Why what's are his you? thing about the body? Like, walk me through it a little bit. You can like, do whatever you want with the corpse. Is that what you mean? Yeah, and, and his <laughs> distinction about that they're not imitating. It's not so much an exemplar as they are kind of like holding to the faith. Like, I didn't understand why that was so right. important for him to, to. Yeah, I, I don't know that I understood that it super well either. No, that was a difference that made a difference. Yeah, so you're not, you don't imitate Christ, right? Christ like dies and then that opens up like you to live your own life or something, but you're not supposed to like literally like be like. I don't know, are you supposed to imitate Christ? I thought you were. I thought, like, yeah, I he thought said, this. I'm, I'm trying to frame it in Bard's terminology because right. Bard. That's what Bard said. Yeah. But now I that I think about it, I'm like, I don't know that that makes sense actually. Yeah. And he seems to be. I mean, I appreciate that he was really transparent about the fact that, like, he's like, I'm beating my head up against the wall. And that's like, it's super complicated for me. I didn't. I just wish I understood what was bugging him. Of, like, what was the hard part about it for him? Well, I think. Was it, is Thomas the guy in the corner? Yeah. Like, he's, he corrected him. Multiple it, times. <laughs> well, but I mean, he corrected him in that and talked about the difference between a martyr and a, um... Scapegoat? Saint? Yeah, it might have been scape, but I feel like it was a different word. But Saint? he talked about, yeah, that, the, like, Jesus represents the martyr and the scapegoat mechanism and then nobody else so so there's there's the scapegoat that becomes deified yeah. as a result of of the cultural relation to the scapegoat but then the martyrs are are people who die for their faith you something know, cause, different yeah yeah because we can't be he was really stuck on that word martyr and i think it was because he was smashing the two together. He was taking sort of this idea of people being like saints, being martyrs because they're dying for a cause, you know, whoever that is, versus sort of this like, this mechanism of deification of the scapegoat, which happens. So are you saying that Bard was wanting to say that the, they, they aren't doing what Christ did in as much as they're not a new scapegoat revealer? My understanding of what he was arguing about was, or his problem with it was, this idea of of the deification of victims as martyrs, right. like how they're how how victims are elevated into this position of martyrs, and that's where the guys like Thomas separated it for him and said yeah. no. You have this mechanism over here, which is the deification, which is Christ, right? So nobody can become Christ. Right. Christ is its own thing. But what people can do is they can be martyred for sticking to their faith and living these principles and yada, yada, yada. And, and there's a distinction between the two. And I didn't see necessarily that Bard caught that yeah. because he continued sort of on in his thing but it hit me pretty hard I was like oh yeah there is a distinct difference between the sort of lynch mob takes somebody out 
and then they get deified and some lit like a, a some they get they become something holy in the in the community or in the culture versus sort of like that like oh yeah that person is dying for something that they believe in like it feels too yeah, like our veterans are martyred right yeah they're, they're dying for you know and, and yeah but they're not holy although we sort of make a cult out of it but that's like not <laughs> yeah I thought that was and he was like you know Zoroastrians is like someone's like I'm going to torture you and kill you if you're not a Zoroastrian. He's like, I'm not a Zoroastrian. <laughs> and no Zoroastrian would say you're not a Zoroastrian because you said that. But there's yeah. this different thing happening in Christianity where it's like if you renounce the faith, there, there's something that happens there. Oh, and that's yeah. like Yeah, he was kind of harping on about that distinction. And he seemed like compelled by it in some way, like attracted to it, yeah. like as a, something he, he thought was good or and to give at least some, compelling. And to give some context, like Bard doesn't really know much about René Jard aside from these conversations yeah. he's having with Thomas and, and and I guess he's reading some but Christianity René Jard that's more Thomas's and Sweeney's thing so uh, it's kind of interesting these last couple episodes how much he's been trying to take Christianity more seriously in some ways and think about this the, the Jard stuff um, and watch him kind of think through that a little bit yeah, that he was kind of troubled by that martyr, and he was like, "Yeah, I'd, yeah, it seemed problematic for him." Yeah, it seemed like he desired it, but also it seemed somehow like problematic for him too. It seems like at a very basic level, it doesn't fit his idea that there is no good and evil; that it's all construction or deconstruction or whatever the terms are that he yeah. uses. And if you have sainthood and martyrdom, those are based on good and evil, and so they wouldn't exist in his view or at least in the Zoroastrian view well doesn't he say that Zoroastrian has the like folk religion that has all those elements like somehow as part of it I remember him talking about that yeah like the, the, there was the elite and then there was sort of the everyone else yeah is that which the I, part you're talking yeah, about yeah I think he was seeing that as analogous to the Christian so it's like it's there on some level I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> to be just completely honest. I'm curious, though. I don't... So it's not that there's no place for uh, good and evil in Zoroastrianism. That is, like, always going to be a part of, like, folk religion, is to have saints and heroes and martyrs, mm -hmm. minor gods, he calls them a lot. Um, but the, like, the, like, more pure, elite, true religion or whatever sees through that. It's not a part of that that level I think sorry I'm going to jump in here is the problem he, he has with like the Zoroastrian who's like I'm not a Zoroastrian versus the Christian who's like dies for their faith is on the one hand it's not to him it's not there's maybe nothing constructive about just dying mm. because of because you tell the truth to some fanatic you know who's got a knife to your throat. Like, to, for him, that's like, that's stupid. Right. You know? um, on the other hand, there is something heroic about it. Right. And that is a heroicism, I think he wrestles with, like, that's desirable to him. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah. Um, I kind of 
felt like I was picking up on that with just how dismissive he was of it. Like even like, he was like, Mother Teresa was probably a terrible person. Like, Actually, no. Like we can't like you can't jump to that ship. Like, like right? Yeah, yeah. He was so that was dismissive kind of, of it. Yeah, it was I was like, like why is he so there? dismissive yeah. of it? Like he just doesn't like it to exist. Almost. It's because he likes it. Well, but there, kind of. there is some truth there. Like in Christianity, you can be a shitty person your whole life mm-hmm. and then become a saint. Like it's by holding it, to the faith at the at the moment, moment that matters, yeah. and that, that there's a lot of saints like that who were like pretty mm-hmm. shitty people, and then like they had their moment and they like stayed true, and then they became, like, which is a kind of heroicism, but it, it's kind of a heroics that I think he's attracted to on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's like a heroics that is in no way Nietzschean, in no way proletarian. Right. Um, it right. doesn't necessarily lead to any positive vision. It's, yeah. it's like a heroic something that, that could be used for no constructive purpose. But it it does get used for a constructive purpose, right? Because then the could, then the Christians come along and they're like, oh, this person died, and like it like actually like like had the opposite effect of like instead of suppressing Christianity, it actually like made it explode and became a very vigorous religion. All these people dying for their faith. And that's somehow where he plugs in the bit about the dead body. Yes, like the body yeah, we can do whatever we want. And we can do whatever we want with the body. And that it becomes like a projective screen or something. Yeah, he's dealing, he's wrestling with these thoughts. I don't know how they go all together. Because like, for him, he's like, ah, I like the fact that he's kind of like, how do the Zoroastrians, what resources do we have? Let the vultures eat the body. <laughs> like, because that stifles something. Like... But what is it stifling? The pharaohs, right? The pyramid building. Their urge to worship them. Right. And why is that problematic, do you think? Because it removes attention from the from the real gods, right? Like from reality. From the living. Yeah. Yeah. And it also it caters to a ad, like an adolescent immature desire for immortality like um, I think there's part of it like there's yeah. he's big he talks on, about that big on the the taking the world as it is be adults you're gonna die and you're gone like accept it like like instantiate that into your your practices and your rituals um, there's something there right? yeah like there's one kind of heroics that's betting on the afterlife mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then there's another kind of heroics that is trying to be intergenerational. And, I mean, I'm doing a cleaner cut than probably really yeah, exists. Right. I think he would call that, like, oh, I, don't know, I imagine he would attribute some uh, immaturity to that, the former right. sort of heroism. And by getting rid of the body, it's like stifling this impulse to celebrate, to put life in death. Um, yeah. And, and necessitating a necessitating a, or demanding a life from the living that does not ho- or th- doesn't like put any hopes t- into like some sort of future like you uh, or like a future afterlife or a future heroism or like sainthood or transcendent yeah you just so Bard is Zoroastrian right like he digs that jet right yeah. like he's like so he converted he converted yeah <laughs> It's where he converted and made another religion that he's not a part of. <laughs> Synthism. Yeah. Um, so I'm just curious, what 
what to him is a constructive life then? Like what, like if Mother Teresa helping out all these victims is just something to mock, what is a good life in, you know, in the sense that he would say constructive life? He's not terribly prescriptive. He talks about ecotopian, ecotopia as as a fairly like un ill-defined or just hazily defined phallic vision. Um, but yeah, there's not a whole lot of I mean he seems more interested in, in like analytical description. Like like the the conception or the <laughs> Walter, all the terms he comes up with drives Walter nuts. Oh, really? Me, too. I, yeah. <laughs> Me too. Me too. He it. shoves a bunch of shit through his terms, yeah, including all of Nietzsche, which yeah. I don't think he understands very well, honestly. <laughs> and some of Marx. But yeah. Um, he gets excited about him. I'll hand him that. Yeah. I thought the Anaject was a fascinating concept. Talk about I want to talk about it. But, um, uh, I forget where I was going. I don't know. Constructive. What's a constructive life? You were oh, kind of brave that he's yeah. got heuristic notions. Like, he's, he's got a thing that, like, he doesn't tell you what it is because he doesn't see that as his job, but he wants to give you categories to think about it. Yeah, I think he's he's coming up with concepts and words and language and, like, a framework within which to operate uh, that's, that's highly uh, related to reality as it is. Right, in the long term. And I think this goes back to your point about the Zoroastrian thing, is he, I guess Zoroaster has this idea of, like, long-term thinking versus short-term thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and a constructive vision is one that takes into consideration the long-term versus the short-term. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's long-term with regard to kind of, like, li- living together and living in the environment. Generations. Yeah, an intergenerational sort of, and that you are kind of, Contributing, but you're contributing to a longer project, and what you leave behind you is for your children and your children's children, whatever. And it's meant to be somehow helping, helping life, helping living um, together in the environment in the long term. But that's not specified because, and it can't be right because whatever Zoroaster thought that was. 4,000 years ago or whatever it was um, it's not going to be relevant today but as a notion it's kind of like you can see that being kind of somewhat Bard specifies it a little bit more like Bard likes to talk about ecotopia in terms of the next ice age um, that like at the very least we're going to have to confront that at some point Um, so it's it makes it a little more specified than just long term in general. It's like he gives some like obstacles that maybe we need to be thinking about in particular. Does that care? Yeah, I think so. He seems to also like uh, like base a lot of his notions of human thriving on like tribal psychology and like how we evolved. So like he sees a, it's not to me it doesn't seem like a nostalgic return, it seems like a kind of like reimagining of those things. Like, we watched that video where he's talking about the nature, the inner circle and the outer circle and, like, in-betweens. And so he's got these kind of, like, you know, the tribal mapping. Like, 
But, yeah, I mean, he has to really be interested in it in a very different sense than returning to it because of his belief in technology is the apex Why do you think that he... Because you're right, he's not prescriptive and he doesn't really... He doesn't an analysis what he sees happening that doesn't really... offer any solutions, but he certainly focuses on what he sort of, like, he certainly does the opposite in the sense of, like, talking about what he thinks is wrong. So I find that really interesting, and I don't really, I mean, for someone who, who so strongly can say what they think is wrong, it's very, just usually in my experience, those people also have a lot of opinions about what's right. And so it's like this interesting thing where he mm. has no problem sort of being like and that's wrong and that's not right and this isn't you know like we're these are causing these problems but yeah I find it interesting that, that there's not sort of this um, yeah this this sort of defining of what is a quality of life what is a a life well lived be a hero, don't be a victim. Yeah, it's pretty I mean, that's ultimately, like, he's really... And it's like, there's some... It's like that... I mean, that it's really, like, that's such a powerful impulse with him that he's, like, he's really, really... Like, the way he talks about woke culture, which it makes... Woke culture makes my skin crawl. Mm-hmm. Identity I politics makes my skin that. crawl. Yeah. But I, I think he's, he's, like, he's scapegoated them in a sense and it's like like Liz asked me she's like why is he like constantly condemning and criticizing the left and never says anything about the right Mm. you know and it's like sometimes in overcoming one error fools rush to their opposite and it's like it seems like he's 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 shut the door so hard on like what's obviously problematic about woke culture and cancel you know cancel culture that he's got no He's like shut his mind to it that he doesn't see beyond it and see like what's going like there's mimetic rivalry going on there and there's like people there's like both sides are both playing, sides the are playing it and it's not like it's not like the childish argument that they're doing it too but it it it, it shuts the door for him and it's like that's where I think Ricoeur would be really interesting to like your idea of like an immature versus a mature faith is really powerful and I think Ricoeur is powerful in that sense like. Um, you know, this, like, childish desire for immortality in an afterlife causes us to never say anything bad about the dead, to heroize the dead, to martyrize the dead, to elevate them. And it's like, yeah, a corpse can't talk back, so it's easy to project all your Freudian fear of death onto this corpse so you hope somebody does it for you too when you die because that's going to be your elevation into the afterlife. That's childish. But it's like he stops at the Nietzschean unveiling of that and Ricoeur says, well, why don't we walk through without being fundamentalist and sticking our head in the sand? And it's like, we don't believe in evolution. We don't listen to Nietzsche. He's evil. We don't listen to anybody that offers a secular, like broad humanist view. And and we're just going to maintain, we're going to become ever more fundamental and literal in our interpretation of religion. So all the magic becomes true. Ricoeur says, walk through those two together and see where the value 
resides. Mm-hmm. It's like, can you have a mature faith, you know, without believing in like harps and clouds, you know? And it's like, I think, I think Bard gets jammed up, like we were saying, when it's like, why, why does he have such a problem with martyrdom? Why is it, why does he have, why does he have such a problem understanding Gerard? And it's like, I think he's grappling with those because he, I don't know, like a lot of people ran into Nietzsche and ran into like a lot of these thinkers and then just just like shut the door and walk through. And it's like, I think that's, that's where I get hung up with him is that it's like, does that make sense? Exactly. Yeah. I, I, the way I kind of talk about it is he doesn't have, he assumes an asymmetry. Yeah. Like he assumes that he's on one side, they're on the other. But as far as I can tell within his philosophy, I don't know what the defining, why why he has some right to be on the one side and so on. Like, to me, it's a very symmetrical critique. Like, it could, like, I don't know yet what the defining feature is that that gives him and Sweeney and Thomas the assurance that they're on the winning team. Exactly. You know, that they're on the, the avant-garde. Like, I think a lot of his, like, I could use his critique to kind of critique some of his... <laughs> his sort of rhetoric and, and yeah so I, I just that's how I tend to think about it is it's like he assumes an asymmetry and, and I just see it symmetrical so far yeah he has he has amazing connections amazingly erudite but there's something like there's like certain points where he hits this roadblock where it lacks like a sophistication and a depth for me where it's like he's he, he literally seems incapable of understanding Gerard, which is weird. It's weird that it's because like... he hasn't actually read Gerard. He's responding to other people's interpretations yeah. of Gerard, so he's responding to the information that is third party. Hmm. Like th- that's the part I have a problem with. Is like you can't launch onto an hour and a half discussion about something that you you actually are simply <clears throat> responding to what other people have told you about it. Like I mean, you can. But you're gonna get some stuff wrong. And then he's trying so, to wrangle he's trying to wrangle his concepts into that while he's doing it. And I think that causes him to be to not take responsibility for, for his utterances and thoughts sometimes. I think it's you're seeing him think real time. Which yeah. in yeah, a lot of ways which grant that. Yeah, I was gonna say it that that what you're describing is something I do all the time, where I I'm like we, a new talk, idea. We and talked like, about that. Like, yeah. yeah, Liz and I were like, <laughs> Wow, we do like, that too. We're sort of watching the sausage <laughs> being made. It'd be interesting to read one of his books and see, like, if you read the Netocrats or Digital Beto and see how you respond to that, where he is actually being a little more, or a little less inflammatory. Yeah. Had he not read Gerard? That doesn't... I think yeah, he's I read some he's, Gerard, but not those, he considers those two people, those are the two people that have kind of brought Gerard front and center for him, right. just because yeah. we tend to be interested in what our conversational partners press us on, so. Yeah, I think I thought he said he hadn't. He wasn't familiar with it at one point. Like what? With, Certainly doesn't he, seem like he does. Like what? Yeah, he does yeah. kind of one downing. Yeah. And like I think he has read Gerard, but he just hasn't read as much as they've read. I was laughing because of that. Like as I was saying that to Rick, I'm like, this really bothers me. But I do this We've all yeah. the time, right? Like I'm always. It's so interesting because I love it. I love hearing them in the moment, like hashing. Out. Yeah. One of my favorite things about this world, stuff. this age, this technology is that we can be present for those conversations. Other people can be present for us and they could be like, well, why are they talking about Bard? They haven't even read Bard. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It just seems, Damn it. 
You know what? <laughs> I know that's why I, got, I was laughing about it because I was like, it really irritates me, but I do it all the time. So yeah, it's this weird thing inside of me that is this disconnect, which is what I'm observing in him, right? So it's like, it's yeah, it's this weird thing where it's sort of like. The thing I like most about him is because he does irritate me, and I'm forced mm-hmm. to ask what it is, and then it's yeah. like, oh, yeah, I do that thing, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I do that thing, too. He's just like me. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but I don't see it, right? You know, which is, like, one of the things that, yeah, anyway, I find I find him fascinating for that reason, because it's like, I mean, beyond any of what he's saying, it's just like, oh, yeah, like, he, he really exposes some things about the way I think and the way that I don't see myself clearly which is something that he's also trapped in I also didn't know we could blame the Spinoza for the hippies that was yeah that was, that was like a real that's like, such wow, a part. thank you for clearing that up for me that's that's the kind of stuff it's just like oh my god he just dismissed, dismissed an entire era of American history culture countercultural history I know. watching no, no, false reading of Spinoza <laughs> What I'm so struck by in that is that he loves Spinoza. Like, yeah. like that's like the great like that I'm kind of in that he, sense he of making just, like, like he could just like cut that cake so finely. Like I'll take all these pieces and then this and then it has gross frosting on it. I love I love his uh, just like watching him talk about immaturity, like what he perceives as immaturity. It's just like prancing little like sing songy voice and he, like bobbles his head. And he's just yeah. I think maybe like what we were talking about earlier that Rick was pointing out like him coming down harder on the woke culture and like not really looking at this other he doesn't really see it I don't think that way as far as like he's just not representing the other perspective it's like at the point in time we're in that's the appropriate response to woke culture is that it's so ridiculous that it's sort of like he's just sort of playing it's a dialectical response or whatever it's not just this thing where it's like you mean at this point in time in history, yeah. like it's the relevant thing to kind of. And that, like, the second part to that I was going to say, but I forgot now. So the thing too is like making fun of these thinkers and stuff. It's like the point we're in. It's like that is, and I'm not saying this is what I think he thinks. Is that our present point in history? It's like that. This is Spinoza's role and the hippies and everything is like we have sort of inherited that right now. It doesn't mean that that would always be the case, or that it's just sort of like it's not. It's kind of relative or whatever. Yeah. It's sort of like he's playing all these different perspectives and sort of like. And then like you're right though too. It's like well, how do they know that they're like this avant-garde? They're kind of just gambling on it. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I think you're it's right. It's like well, we thinks maybe we're right or whatever, and that this is. I like your point about because I think that's what his dialectics <clears throat> is, right? Is that sensitivity to kind of like the issue that he's talking about or the time that he's talking in that privileges some things over other things. Like, yeah. Another another feature too is he can have discussions with the right. The right's more willing to talk, so he can he can have a direct conversation with somebody who's on the right side of that and or the <laughs> the right political side and uh, and say I like this about what you're saying like like these these pieces of what you're saying I like this thing right 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 here and this thing right here these are terrible terrible ideas um, and you can do that in direct conversation with the people but like mm-hmm. that's that seems to be a feature 
strangely, that's a feature of the right now. Is or that's you can have conversations more easily on the right than you can on the left. Um, like having a conversation on the left is perilous, um, which is why he's kind of like reduced to screaming at him from other screaming, yelling at them from uh, you know far away. It's also just the case that post Hitler and Nazi, like the dangers of the right seem like so clearly defined, whereas the dangers of the left people seem very asleep to. That's a point. That's, yeah, that it's, is that's very true. I agree. And I think that's what makes like him, people like him and Jordan Peterson so powerful, yeah. mm-hmm. but also dangerous in error in going too far in yeah, the opposite sure. direction and not like all of a sudden it's like this massive dismissal, you know, and it's like, well, that's not really criticism is like seeing like where they're right and where they're wrong. It's become right. this like bogeyman, you right. know, and it's like that to me is, yeah, can be something that's really can be really dangerous, you know. That's I really appreciate Schmachtenberger's like sort of balanced, he's like, great. nuanced yeah. approach. I don't go to Bard for that kind of balance. I feel like. <laughs> that's <laughs> not what you go to Bard to get my ass all puckered up. <laughs> Yell that about your Rousseauian <laughs> fantasies. Was his critique of Spinoza just so I understand the hippie thing? Yeah. Was it that it Spinoza kind of had a world that's all connected and that is essentially harmonious? Yes. There's some okay. underlying, what do you call it, panpsychism? Monist. Yeah. But see, Bard likes monism. But he likes that he weird does, There's something about like, it. Conflict yeah. So see, the, the, one, the way that it led to like a one world, we're all one, it's right. all good, man, <laughs> right. we're all brothers and sisters. He's like, fuck that. And it's like, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so for Bard, and this is very compelling to me, but for Bard there's like, there's a kind of monism, we're all like united, we're all coming out of the same substance, but then there's difference on top of that that you have to take into account or something like that. Which he gets that from that's what he has a common with Zizek, I think, is is that Zizek has this idea that there is he called it like the bard real or the the bard symbolic as well, is that there's conflict like inherent in the universe. Just as there's conflict inherent in our ideological uh, superstructures or whatever, that like there's no the lava lamp won't stop. Like there's no the, there's something that conflict is not something that can be overcome. It's that's right. like inherent to yeah. I was world. thinking about this, thinking about listening to the podcast about the victim mentality and what the sort of end goals are around the like culture of like like rooting out oppression and it seems to be a kind of like like erasure of friction of all like difficulty in, in making things like smooth you know like some people have to be brought down for that some people have to be brought up but like eventually we'll reach a point I think where like you don't have any of that is, is that the goal or am I just I is there a goal it's so tricky because when I hear a left I actually the podcast I was listening to they they just uh they were capable of self-critique, but they just were making a point about the right, and then I want to apply this to the left. The point about the right was, like, this idea of uh, jouissance, mm-hmm. so kind of what gets you jouissance. off, mm-hmm. and that there's something about being in the group and acting in the group and getting kind of charged by the group that kind of allows you to do things that you might not do if you were by yourself. Yeah, um, totally. And, and they were referring to Trump rallies. And I was like, 
And this is during a time where there's like riots and like, but for them it was like Trump rallies were the ultimate example of this. And to me, I'm like, this idea that maybe there's pleasure actually. So this question of pleasure, um, and what Khan kind of raises, one wants to point to the pleasure that we get from like destructiveness. Uh, he wants to point to that. But then there's also the pleasure that we can get from our symptom. And he was saying as a Lacanian psychoanalyst who deals primarily with the left, that he raises this question oftentimes in analysis of like, reading something, getting pissed off about it, going and yelling about it. Isn't there something like pleasurable about that? Like, what would you have if you didn't have that? Yeah. Um, So just like owning one's own, which is their problem. Do they want the world to be like even? No. And at a psychoanalytic perspective, it's like, no, they don't. Right. Because there's a kind of, uh, there's something about that symptom that, or that, that problem that is inherently pleasurable, although it's a kind of pleasure that we yeah. need to look at. I really appreciate that, like, uh, like sort mm. of underneath perspective of what's going on, but I guess I was, I was thinking more about, explicit. like, what are their explicit goals here? Can, can and I what... tell you what I think? I know I'm talking a lot, but I'm just going No, no, it. I want to hear it. All right, so here's my most charitable interpretation of intersectionality, is that society <laughs> will always have kind of... Uh, will always be something that needs to be worked on and there will always be kind of cul-de-sacs of oppression and people that lose out because the system is inherently like problematic but that point's going to shift and move so if we always focus on the most marginalized and work to lift that person up it's kind of a principle that allows tells us where to work so that because per- if we raise that person up, the assumption is is that there won't be anyone below that person. Mm. So at the very least, if we if we work from that point up, we're kind of starting at the like the, the, it's an absolute like mm. there will be no one behind them. So it's like if you kind of make the person that's if we're running from a bear, the person that's closest to the bear, if you bring them forward, the, we're working as a group to like. From the <laughs> uh, that's, I, I think so there's not an, a, a necessarily a explicit desire for like a frictionless frictionless Marxist utopia or something like I, that in the most I mean maybe as an aspiration but it would be for me I think it's more like pragmatic <clears throat> like if we that's at least we can agree to work on this uh, and that's wow that's, that's very exactly terrible. what Nietzsche reacted against Right. Exactly. And what, and I mean, it's like the, it, the mediocritization of, democ- of the democratic instinct is like when you reach back to pull the lowest person down, you're bringing the That's entire what the Romans would have been like, what are you talking so about? So it kind of moves the group kind of closer yeah. to the Yeah, and he says you just get like, you get the lowest common denominator. It's like, yeah, which it's a powerful argument. I'm not well. No. <laughs> <laughs> Can't see very well. He's like, well, what happened? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Help flesh out the Nietzsche critique for me, though. Like, what what is it about the victim that he just finds? Like, what's his what's his issue? I think uh, 
because its psychology um, is taken for granted as a virtue when its um, motivations aren't analyzed. Like when he said, like, the greatest giver of alms is cowardice. It's like you're afraid not to give because of what people will think. And you haven't really, like, at, like looked at what this means and what it does. So it's like that group, that kind of, like, you know, that that's herd, men, you know, what he called the herd mentality and the way, you know, the way that, like, morals get celebrated by the herd mentality they actually like end up like tipped on like tipped on their head and I think that was his whole project is like pulling that apart is like what is what does Christianity consider good and virtuous and you know abnegation of the desires and, like, and, he, and like his argument was like no like it's like the people that have like given way to their completely explosive de- desires are the ones who move history forward even in their destructive capacity He's like the, the the like the democratic instinct is to like is to tamp tamper that spirit while trying to like raise the bottom. But what it it's like he just considered that it just like flattened everything into a mediocrity. Like it was like it denied the will to power. What was it about mediocrity that's so so off-putting? Like, what does he think the cost of that is? Like, the, the elitism of the spirit. Like, I mean, he believed in elite elite the way that Bard did. Is like, that was what actually, like, moved us forward. It was, like, the, like the hierarchy of... Like, he believed in the hierarchy of souls. Like, there were great people. I think it's not so much souls. It's, it's... I think he was the first thinker to actually take Darwin seriously... And so for him, it's very, like, material. material like, yeah. Like, you think about a pack of lions. What sort of pressures would have end up with, a, like, a, a whole bunch of mediocre lions? And would that even be a good thing? Like, no, you want to see, like, the biggest, strongest, most powerful lion. Like, that's fulfilling, in some sense, its evolutionary goal. And I think Nietzsche thought very similarly about people. The aristocrats were the lions. They were the yep. eagles. They were the people who ruled. And yep. they took life, and they gave life as they willed. On whatever their whims were and for Nietzsche that's an aesthetic thing I think it's like aesthetically the point of it's really confusing because he also in so- sometimes talks about how like Christianity has like hollowed us out and like makes it sound like there's a there's a next step coming but, but he's never something. in my ex- like reading of him ever like really explains how that or what that inwardness will how that will like mesh with psych with evolution yeah. to like create something newer and better but yeah I think you really does see people as like no different from lions in some sense and and in in the same way as Bard that's like be a hero don't be a victim I think Nietzsche kind of said the same thing when he talked about like he called Christianity nihilistic I mean because it's tragic and it's like death obsessed and wants to like create passivity I mean I think his it's like I agreed with his reading for 25 years and finally, like, kind of, like, tried, like pushed my way through it, you know, I was like, okay. It's a good reading right. of a lot of the sort of passive-aggressive Christian culture that Absolutely. I've experienced. Of the religion, of the dogma <laughs> and the religion itself. He, I mean, he had great admiration for, for Jesus, you know, the figure of Jesus. But, kind of. He also hated him, yeah. too. <laughs> well, just like Jesus and Because he had to break free of him. I mean, ultimately, yeah. like, that was, like, the, the... Yeah. I think maybe, like, for maybe... I mean, I know, like, personally, looking at myself and, like, just stuff I learned through recovery, I won't go through it, like, too much, but my problem with, like, other people's suffering is not actually 
because I care about their, that they're suffering so much is that it's like it makes me uncomfortable right so I want them not to suffer so that I feel good yeah <laughs> it's basically about me it's got nothing to do with them <laughs> and so like I think part of this thing is like and again so like we have only so much energy like I don't think that Nietzsche or even Bard like it's not so much you don't want to waste your time helping people or you don't want to like but it's like are you helping people by feeling sorry for them and by like coddling them, them and yeah and, like, maybe the best thing to do is, like, I don't know, like, yeah, and, like, you know, the feeling of pity or whatever, I think it, like, pulls you down and it makes you, it makes you yourself mediocre and yep. just sort of worthless. And, like, that whole thing of, I heard Sam Harris talk about, like, the dangers of, like, empathizing too much it just makes you depressed and you can't act at all and it's sort of like that's the leveling process of just like everybody becomes just a sort of soft piece of shit or whatever and they can't do anything and it's like I don't think the only alternative is to be a hard ass and just like you know it doesn't have to be this thing but it's like there's this weird thing where it's like you have to take care of yourself first and have the become somebody who's actually you know more Mm -hmm. like heroic or whatever you want to call it it's like that's more the responsibility of like humans and somehow we've shifted this around and like people and that's the more difficult thing to do too again it's to be like I know my own experience of having like codependent relationships and being just like wishy-washy and like really hurting people a lot by thinking that I'm just trying to help them and it's their fault (laughs) where it's like when I like distance myself and it's like some people are suffering and it's none of my business it's just like I can't help them there's nothing I can do about it it's like the best thing I can do like I offer the help I can but it's like it's not you know treating them like victims and secretly feeling good about myself like that makes me a good person is not <laughs> that, the answer it's that. sort of like yeah and again like that, that's more my personal experience but it's like i think that that's helpful to sort of like look at people's motivations and that's the thing with the left or whatever what i think they don't get is like if you want to generalize or whatever it's like very much that like patting themselves on the back and virtue yeah, signaling and sort of like yeah. not realizing the world's tragic and we're all going to die and like suffering's inevitable sort of like you can't make the world really perfect or whatever and I think that's sort of like again not the you know yeah so there's some sense in which mediocrity is kind of tied into this denial of what is really going on for us denial of life absolutely which is a part of life and it might be like uncomfortable but to to realize oh I'm doing this Mm -hmm. to basically make myself feel good to be honest about that and act life with some soberness about that fact you know is in some sense like healthier or or at least yeah cause I, I, because underneath that real quick yeah, if I'm not really aware of that I'm actually resent everybody yeah, I fucking hate exactly. humanity and I hate everybody right exactly. so there's a sickness in denying that yeah. like in trying not like, to look that pushing that down to yeah. be Pitiful and look and look at like the woke yeah. culture hates itself and wants to destroy itself. Yeah. They completely mm-hmm. are like full of self-loathing and resentment and just like mm-hmm. totally weak and just like. And again, I'm like generalizing. It's like, but you know what I mean. It's like that's not everybody on the left is like that, but that's what I think the reaction is of like that's not what we want. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. we don't want that for your enemies. Like nobody. Yeah. So the price of mediocrity is sickness. Yeah, that's exactly what Nietzsche said. That's yeah. exactly what he like said. Like biological Precisely. sickness. Yeah, and like soul sickness and yeah. spiritual sickness. He called it, uh, well, cultural, uh, cultural of resentment becomes anemic is what he said. It's like it just like drains away the life force. Which, this is interesting, but I'm going to 
bring up. I think I'm for myself. I'm starting to resolve this. I'm clapping. Like, <laughs> with each syllable. With each. <laughs> so so I, I don't think instead of scape. So scapegoating is a newer concept, I guess, for for Bard. But the concept he did have was abjection, and he actually thought abjection was a developmentally appropriate thing at certain points. Right. Like you object, mm-hmm. you get objected from the womb, you object to the tit eventually, and then you object to the nest and your family to some degree to go out on your own. Right. And that there is a certain amount of contempt and disgust that he thinks is appropriate in moving towards something. So you're like, there's something about being dis. Sounds like a self-criticism. Like, like an ill. Ab- like, ill. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be a child. Yep. Like, or ill. I don't want to be just, like, a sick soul. <laughs> like, like there's... And so for the Wersonians, for him, I think there's a part of... I would... He's not enough of a Christian to engage in this sort of behavior, but, like, if you were to kind of... I bet if you were to open up Bard's soul, you would see that there's probably a part of him that really desires the Rousseau. Um, you know, yeah. and that he kind of needs like to engage in this abjection of it, just to find the momentum wow. to the escape velocity. Like good stuff. You know, like <laughs> in the same way, we need to object from the breast to find the escape velocity to reach escape velocity towards mm-hmm. you know being more independent. Um, and in the same way, there's kind of an objection of this kind of like this resentment-filled like like denial of what's actually going on in ourselves. It's kind of like, oh, like it's gross not to know why I'm doing what I'm doing and for the real reasons, like, like, or the joy that I could get from pitying someone and feeling good about myself, mm-hmm. and, you know, playing the, whatever. And like, there's a certain amount of disgust that I think, contempt that I think might be yeah. abjection that might be appropriate yeah. to do something, to do something more reaching. And yeah, and living in like acceptance of the world as it is yes. may look cruel to a person who isn't. Yes. You're not very nice, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you're not so... But mm. it doesn't have to be cruelty and it doesn't have to be hardness. Right. That's interesting. For Nietzsche, the, the aristocracy was cruel. Hard. Like he described them in those terms. Yeah. But the, the Ubermensch is not necessarily cruel. Mm-hmm. Right. right. There's, a, there's a depth still terms. post-Christian. Apollonian. Right. Yeah. yeah. Apollonian? That's what he called yeah. the Ubermensch. Yeah. Oh, that's or no, the, the I was thinking the aristocracy. The aristocracy, like, or the yeah. Apollonian. Yeah, the Ubermensch is more in the Dionysian for mm-hmm. him, right? Yeah. yeah. What a good conversation. Yeah, Nietzsche. Hmm. How are we doing on our time? We are just about ready to talk about where we're heading next. Yeah, I enjoyed this conversation a lot. Yeah. Me too. And I know. There's still, I mean, we could we could keep going on Bard for weeks and weeks, but I think there is a point at which, like, I don't know, everybody in the group isn't equally interested, and... It'd be nice to do something else. Yeah, um, I don't really, I mean, Verveke's solid. I'm not personally feeling super drawn to pursuing Verveke right now, but I'm totally open to it. I'm wondering if anybody else has Holly any... said Verveke in her text yeah yeah I was um, talking with her I um, like Vicky. I also really like that guy in that last video we watched but I couldn't find yeah, anything of him anything else I looked too because I, I enjoyed him a lot um I'm open for whatever actually he well no he, it was more an interview he did a five part series with Bard 
when you just mostly ask questions. Yeah. Was that the guy with Parallax? I think, yeah, I think oh, that's okay. the Parallax guy. Oh, cool, I didn't realize that. I'm gonna could be wrong, but I think that's keep standing for Illich. I was just gonna say, I right before you talk. said that, I remember you talking about that, and then it came Let's, up, like, some of his books, I and also, I'm interested I, in that, too. Yeah, I also think Gerard could be really worth it. Yeah, I would There's love... A I, David Cayley podcast where they talk about Girard. It's a it's a conference. I guess they have it every year where a bunch of scholars or Girard scholars come together and talk. I listened to it years ago, but I remember it being really good. Like there's one point where they're like talking about like what's the like true like beneficial genetic <coughs> desire and they're like it's like if you desire the other person's like well being or something, then that's like the like way out of it. So I don't think there's a lot there too. Those don't have to be for this week, but I just, I'm going to keep yeah. pushing both of those. I mean, I, I would. Really I'm. Good. I've got some juice around Gerard. Exactly. Um, I don't know. If, or Illich, like you said. Yeah, I, I have no context for Illich. Other I'd than, appreciate the Gerard because I don't. I start trying to read that book, and I'm just like, I cannot. I find book. it difficult. I don't really get it. So like, that would help me because then I would actually study it more deeply and cool. talk about it with you guys but why don't but we hold, hold off on that one a week and I'll re-listen to it and see if it actually would be good to talk to because it was so long ago I listened to it I don't know if it actually would be helpful or if it's like you need to understand <laughs> Gerard to understand what they're talking about <clears throat> should we shoot for Verveke next week and then maybe just yeah. get, maybe do some reconnaissance are, work are you up for stuff? that you seemed res- like I'm not resistant. Just I, I, I'm not. I'm not feeling drawn not as for Ricky right now. But I'm, I'm totally. I'm in, the, I'm in the same boat. I do really like him, and I'd be down to spend some time with him. What about? There's an episode of Sweeney v. Bard that features Verveke too, in the same role that Hamilton played in this episode. I, that that was one of my least favorite. Okay. What did you think? I, 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 I was like so obsessed found with that this one too, really. Zoroastrianism. Tough. Okay. Well. Yeah. No, that's fine. I'd rather I'd... just do Vervecki on his own. Terms. Okay. But yeah. I'm open to. Is it. there no. such? Is there? Oh yeah, he's got a ton. He's got like fifty. There's like a fifty part. The meeting crisis, ones on. Um, but I mean, that's hard to really take one of those out of context. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, he builds. I'm not quite sure where to start with Vervecki. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe he needs some reconnaissance work as well. Hmm. Trash suggested the. Uh, Verveke's Zach Stein mm, mm-hmm. educational stuff. I've listened to them. They're pretty. They're interesting. Some interesting stuff in there. We could read Rick's short story and discuss that. It's true. Yeah. He wasn't. Didn't hear that. Um. That was sort of like one of the original kind of ideas I had for this group. Was I wasn't. I didn't picture us going into these. I mean. But before we even met the first time, I was like thinking we could share. I don't know. At least have have an opening for stuff we've made or like stuff we've generated personally, yeah. and discuss that. Um, but that's yeah. It's not really the quite the direction we've gone with the group. But I still would like incorporating that in somehow. Also, I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't know if what we're uh, discussing here is helpful enough to the general like worldwide conversation to start thinking about um, having like put, probably not putting out these discussions but putting out some podcasts I was wondering uh, one potential model would be to have our discussions like this every week and then maybe halfway through or so we'll have say we discuss this podcast 
and we kind of like work through a lot of our thoughts. We sort of like come up with some bullet points of like things that were sort of that emerged from our conversation, and then we rediscuss those bullet those like ideas, those bullet points, and like another smaller conversation with like maybe just a few people that were interested that could make it on like a Saturday or something. Yeah. Um, and we could maybe have that be a little more formatted, hour long. We talk about like Bard's notion of um, of the or the Gerard like Bard's approach to Gerard's notion of the scapegoat or something. Um, that's that's an idea I kind of have been toying with. I will say there's nothing like this that I'm aware of as a podcaster on a Discord server that's explicitly about Bard. Um, so even someone like t- tonight's conversation I thought was really good. Yeah, me know? too. And I could imagine someone who was maybe just a lone listener and wish they had some dialogue uh-huh. partners. Yeah, I do want. I mean, I want to be. <laughs> it's not like we have huge followings, but um, it's probably worth being at least mindful of, like, like how, like we're not, uh, uh, how I don't know, some of the topics we touched on tonight would be encountered with something other than charity. Yeah, sure. if the wrong person heard it. I was thinking about this earlier today too, and I my 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 personal like I was thinking through. I I think that I'm resigned to at some point being attacked by the lynch mob if it happens. Mm-hmm. Like, it for me personally, it's not something I I'm gonna like moderate my speech around. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I'm not interested in moderating like moderating my speech either. But there is a question of how loudly do we broadcast our process Um, because I know I would feel some hesitation to process quite as openly I don't yeah I don't process things uh, like out in public the same way I process things here right and I I would personally feel some inner hesitation to say things as frankly or to yeah no that makes sense um, you're more more frank and vulnerable here Mm -hmm. I mean that makes sense can yeah. you give me an example of what you would be concerned about somebody reacting to? Well, I mean, we talk, we just, we're a bunch of white people talking about slavery. Um, yeah, okay. Like, I don't actually think, I don't, I don't have any problem with that, I think, but there is a, uh, <laughs> that could very easily, well, yeah, see, I don't want to be afraid of that. I am, I am, but yeah. I... It's, yeah. an, it's, it's, a it's like a it's real legit. thing to be legitimately afraid of. Um, and it would, uh, my fear would limit my capacity to be frank, to frankly deal with like a complex topic. Do you put all of our names on there when you say? Like, no, but I mean. <laughs> you could do it as just anonymous. I mean, we could just post it as an anonymous sort of thing. Yeah, although then that makes, I mean. Q that anon. That makes for a pretty. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Q anon. <laughs> that makes for a. Uh, um, not a very engaging listening experience. You just have these like these random voices with no faces, no stories, and um, you can't really, don't really, like you just. Yeah, I don't I know. Would, yeah, I guess I was thinking more as like there's so few of the people that would actually like find it interesting, uh-huh. and it'd be more like a gateway to connections and other conversations rather yeah. than maybe like a big following or something. It would be more like oh. It, like someone who's also interested and would also be interested in a conversation at some point. You just make sure to put it like in the middle or the middle end of the conversation. So if you stick around that long, it's like they're yeah. probably accept us. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
I think it's interesting that I don't recall anybody, at least when I was talking about that stuff, I didn't give my own opinion of it. I don't really have. I was just like describing what somebody else was saying about it. Which even that's like unacceptable, I guess. To even like engage in the topic unless it's like. Yeah, it's just. It's, well, yeah, I have my own kind of <laughs> fears. And, um, uh, I, I also suspect that, and we've sort of talked about this is that there are a lot of sort of middle, like I consider myself, I'm a, I hate right and left, I just, because I don't fit either category, and, but, but there are a lot of, like, more moderate voices that are not being heard, and a lot of people who sort of think about these things in a more moderate way and not on these extreme examples that seem to be rising to the sort of like they're getting all the attention mm-hmm. right and so I think yeah you'll have sort of these marginalized sides that might be reactionary but there's a lot more people I think that would be that aren't going to react in that way I I, yeah, well, so, yeah, I I don't want to shy away from topics, but I do want to handle them uh, tactfully. Absolutely. Eh, not, 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 like, pussyfoot. Dishonestly. Not, nah, yeah. not, not dishonestly and not, not forthrightly, whatever right. the opposite of forthrightness is. But um, um, I do want to, you know, be a little more conscious about composition. Yeah. And it's, I like not having to worry here like mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not worried I still might, might start to feel a little like, like ooh we're talking about slavery like if anybody like heard us a bunch of white people talking about slavery this could be ugly I don't know if that's even true but that's that's like my my, my little cringy instinct mm-hmm. but um uh yeah yeah so I don't know that's right I mean honestly like as we've been talking about this and about it I'm realizing that I have people, we have people in our, like, broader social environment who I know, like, if they listen to our conversation tonight, there's a very real chance that they would publicly broadcast it in the, like, socially justice woke kind mm-hmm. of way. Really? Yeah. Like yeah. my brother? Yes. <laughs> That's cool. That's <laughs> exactly. And his partner. Those are the two people who can Who are you thinking of? My brother. Ryan and Scarletta. Huh. They would be happy to rip us to shreds if they got this. They'd be like, yeah. look, Gutenberg College alumni being racist and sexist and transphobic. Like, I mean, I don't know that they would, but that's definitely a very yeah, real possibility. Yeah, <laughs> It would fit their narratives, at least. I want to make sure that because I'm gonna do, I'm gonna throw a ninja bomb here pretty soon. Yeah. So I, I, as far as a, <laughs> as far as a podcast. Wait, let for, me get my cell phone. <laughs> as far as a podcast for next week, um, I'm gonna throw out something because it sounds like we don't really know what for is an option, but we don't know which ones because it's hard to kind of cherry pick from mm-hmm. the meaning crisis one, the Illich and the. Gerard sound game but you need to do some reconnaissance work um, we could do one last one on Bard and do it on the either look at some of the tantric stuff on mm-hmm. the, the Bard versus Sweeney and there's also or there's a discussion he's the interviewer and I've never watched them they're the only ones I haven't mm-hmm. seen of Bard I think is the Alexa Bart- Bartman ones and Alexa Bartman's like a transgender woman tantric sexologist and it's bards and 
yeah, Bardsey interviewer, they're, they're just kind of talking about, like, Tantra. Um, I don't know if it's any good or not, but... Um, yeah, I... Apparently hit it off because they started dating after that. But, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I'd be into... I, Tantra is something I'd definitely be interested in talking about okay. more. Bard's specific weird view of it. Yeah, like, I feel like there's, like, a there's like a number of episodes, like, in the middle of Bard versus Sweeney that deal with that topic. Um, or the Alexa Bard and stuff. stuff. What do you all think? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be open to that. Okay. Um, it seems like there's a lot of good options and no, no clear standout, but... Um, I know Trask is pretty much... It's just is really is ready to be done with Bard. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but we can move on from it then. That's that. That's good. Um, um, yeah, yeah. But it's on to what? There's a lot of potential directions to go, and um, I mean, we can. You think you could do some like recon on that David Cayley episode and um, like message the group in the next couple days? Yeah. How we long also is just it? do the like. Just start in on the meaning crisis, like the first like two or something like that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe we'll just start start a. Yeah, we could do that. Yeah. Um, as a, so that way, yeah, we, we could postpone Gerard and then just start in on just the meaning give crisis. Time to find a good as long as we can, or as far as we, as far as anybody can can get. And, the uh, first couple episodes, which are the only two that I listened to <laughs> so far, are actually really interesting and. Play into some of what Bart's talking about with the tribalism mm-hmm. actually dovetails pretty mm-hmm. nicely, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. So it might be a good cool. place to sort of, I mean, to mm-hmm. to to sort of round some of yeah, that good. stuff out in a different way, even if we don't persist in mm-hmm. sort of following that. Yeah, it's a. I always enjoy a, like a ref or a refresher and kind of the scope of the western canon mm-hmm. history yeah. it's not just the western canon but like like the canon of thought in the last like thousand two thousand years yes. Yes. I think that's a noble yeah. noble mountain to try and climb in the podcast space is just yeah. that, that uh-huh. those for lectures yeah. cool I feel like that'd be worth it yeah I dig it I'm being able to talk about it would keep me motivated a little I know bit. I'm feeling some juice around it now so there we go cool there we go Right. For Vakey Meaning Crisis. All right. Next week. See you all later. Good seeing you. Yeah. <laughs> hey, where's right. the smoke? He's starving. There is <clears throat> Yeah. Oops. Oh, sorry. Is that the... <laughs>